Earlier this week, Tabitha and I were driving back with our family, um, first from Ann Arbor, where we celebrated Thanksgiving with family uh, last week, or I guess the week before now. And earlier this week, I had a, in a, a work event in Chicago. And so instead of driving home uh, all the way to Minneapolis and then getting on a plane and flying halfway back, uh, we just decided to drive through Chicago um, with our family and stay there. We spent a night there and then continued driving home. Now, Chicago is um, about a six-hour drive, um, depending on two things. One, um, how relentlessly you are following the speed limit, and two, um, how the traffic is in Chicago. So those are the two major variables on the length, but suffice it to say, it's a pretty long drive. And so we were getting out at, oh, 1 p.m., 1.30 uh, or so, and so we had a long drive ahead of us, and we had five children in our car. And so it got dark early, and so it's dark, and we've been going for hours. And there reached a point where Tabitha and I just said, okay, we need, we need a little entertainment here. We just need something to keep us going. This is really dragging at this point. You probably have been there. The children were, were in the back. They were being entertained. And so we said, what do we need? Well, we knew something. I'm not a podcast person. Some of you might be podcast people. I'm not a podcast person. But I knew someone who is. Does anyone know who I would first turn to when it came time to look for a podcast? Of course. James. Yes, everyone. Just respond in acclamation. James. Yes. James is the podcast man. And so we texted. And, and um, the, one of the responses we got back from my family, oh, podcast. What about a true crime podcast? I don't know. How many of you have ever interacted with a true crime podcast before? Have you, have you, have you never, never have some of you? Some of you maybe have. Some of you are really into it. I, again, I, I, had, I was aware of the genre, right? I, I, was, I, was, I, I remember watching a documentary on the Murdoch murders, you know, that big mystery down in South Carolina. Um, there's something about true crime podcasts. There's something about the way our justice system works that fascinates people. In fact, I found uh, that, do you know that true crime podcasts are the most common theme among the most popular podcasts in America today? Um, I, I saw this 34% in a recent study of, of U.S. adults who, who, who consume podcasts regularly listen to true crime podcasts. Okay. So I'm tapping into something here that's, that's pretty popular, whether or not you are part of the genre or not. But, but I want to tell you today, if you like true crime, do I have a story for you this morning? If you like mysteries about the justice system, I've got a story for you this morning. Because this morning, it's all about Jesus on trial. And the question for you that you're going to have to figure out if, if you're a true crime fan is you're going to have to decide by the end of the service today, did he do it? I, I, is he guilty? Because at the end of the passage that Kelvin Todd read for us this morning, the people who were trying Jesus unanimously said, he's guilty and he should die. Capital punishment. 
In fact, if we fast forward several weeks in our study of the Gospel of Mark, you're going to find that Jesus had another trial, a trial not in front of the religious authorities, the Jewish religious authorities, the Sanhedrin. We're looking at that this morning. He had another trial in several phases before the Roman government. These same people were trying, they were the prosecutors. Put him to death, crucify him, crucify him. And ultimately, the Roman government found him guilty and did just that. What do you think? You see, the real question today, I'm going to suggest to you that when we look at Jesus on trial, the amazing thing about it is that ultimately you and I are on trial. And ultimately how Jesus defended himself in this trial is to place his accusers on trial and in fact to condemn them by their own words. The title of the message this morning is simply that, Jesus on Trial. And I want to look at this as if we are in our own kind of true crime, justice system drama. It is an amazing drama with amazing facts, things that I think will keep all of our attention this morning. But ultimately, we're not doing this for education. We're doing this to bring everyone here to the simple question, what is your verdict on this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, why do I start with this in our Christmas season? We're here in the first Sunday of Advent. We're looking forward to celebrating, perhaps with family or friends or church family, the birth of Jesus. Why do we start with him on trial? And as I said earlier today, it's because ultimately that's what Christmas is all about. It's remarkable. Just yesterday, we were going to pick up a Christmas tree. We were going around to pick out a Christmas book. Our family picks out a little Christmas book that I read to the kids each year. We got a little food, and and what do you hear everywhere? You hear Christmas music. And, And you don't just hear the kind of secular stuff like Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. You know, this kind of this kind of moralism. No. If you listen when you're walking around secular scores or stores, you'll be hearing things like, Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. You'll hear words like, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. You'll, you'll hear that in bookstores. You'll hear that in restaurants. You'll hear secular artists who have never professed the name of Christ, they'll be singing those words. And ultimately, the question of Christmas is the same question we're going to confront today. Do you believe those words? Is that who Jesus is to you when you have examined the evidence, when you look at his claims? Jesus is on trial, not just here. Jesus is on trial today, in our Christmas season. And Jesus, ultimately, is the one putting us on trial. Well, we're going to look at verses 53 through 65 today. And I just encourage you to have your Bible out this morning. If you have one with you or look on with someone who does, you may have that on your phone or a tablet. You may have that in a hard copy. But if we're going to be really understanding this trial and what's going on in this trial, we're going to need to be looking at the text together. I do not ever want to be in a position of saying something to you that I can't back up from the Word of God, from the text 
itself. And you can hold me accountable to that yourself. Well, first, if we're going to look at this drama of Jesus on trial, we need to look at the conspiracy. Because that's really the, the, what it is. It's a conspiracy. What is happening here is something that the Jewish rulers had been looking for for some time. And even if you go back in chapter 14, you can see in verse number 1, it says that the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft, by trickery, and put him to death. So already at the beginning of this Passover week, they were looking, how can we arrest Jesus? How can we bring him in? And how ultimately can we put him to death? Verse 10 and verse 11 of this chapter talks about the chief priests and scribes and elders working with Judas. It says in particular, it identifies the chief priests here to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how we might conveniently betray him. So what did they do? They found a traitor. They found someone in Jesus' group. Why? Well, again, think, think this out logically with me. Jesus was an extremely popular figure. He'd been healing the sick. He'd even been raising the dead. He'd been performing all these divine miracles and bringing this hard-hitting preaching that people were listening to. And so now the religious elite of Jesus' day is worried. Their power is being threatened. In fact, we looked at several weeks ago now, probably maybe perhaps several months ago, when Jesus came into the temple and started clearing out the temple from all the merchandising, from all the commercialism that was there. Talk about a Christmas sermon. He started clearing everything out. And why did people get, why would the chief priests have gotten so mad? Because that was their game. How do you think the high priest got so rich? Where do you think that money was going to? The money changers and all the sales. It was ultimately going into Caiaphas's pocket, into Annas's pocket. And so he was a threat, not only to their religious stature, but potentially their economic stature as well. And so they're out to get him. And so what do they do? You remember Judas leaves the, the Last Supper with Jesus. He goes out to the high priest and say, come on, I've got him. And so what do they do? They call together a whole band. They were the temple police. We know from the Gospel of John there were Roman soldiers with them as well. They got a Roman cohort from Pilate or from the Roman government. And so now they come and they arrest Jesus. And that's what we looked at last week. They place him under arrest in the dead of night, probably around midnight, in the Garden of Gethsemane, a private garden outside of the city of Jerusalem. They say, why did they need to do it at the middle of the night? Why all this cloak and dagger stuff? Well, what do you think would have happened? What did they think might have happened if they had tried to arrest him in the middle of day? When he's preaching, how would that have gone? They knew. They feared a riot. And so they thought, let's get him. His, his disciple Judas will tell us where he is privately. And in the night we'll go and we'll get him and we'll arrest him. And so now if you fast forward, he's been arrested and now, and Jesus has been abandoned by his closest friends. Now look ahead to verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Now, 
this seems to be a specific description that there was a meeting of, 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 of Israel's highest supreme court. And we talked about this before. It's a Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of exactly this group of people. Chief priests, elders, influential people in that land, and scribes. People who were about the law of Moses. This was the judicial council of Israel. Now remember, Israel was under Rome. They were subservient to Rome. Roman government was the chief government. But they would allow Israel, the Jews, to have their own form of self-government, and they allowed them to judge certain things according to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of 70 people plus the high priest. So 71 people would sit in. Now here, we don't know exactly how many of this body would have formed together. It says all here, but that could mean just a quorum. 23 would be necessary to have a group that could meet together and decide matters. Now, you need to understand, this is really remarkable. There are a couple things about this that are totally remarkable. It was remarkable because it was in the middle of the night. And this would have been absolutely 100% against Jewish custom, against their rules. You never tried someone in the middle of the night. Again, we're talking around 2 or 3 a.m. they're having a trial. Now, if you had heard that some controversial prisoner in the city of Minneapolis was being tried by some jury in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. in the morning with no public oversight, with no kind of, 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 of accountability, what would you immediately think? I know what's going on. I know what's going on. And you'd be exactly right here. In fact, if you go ahead um, nearly a couple hundred years after Jesus, when Jewish regulations were put together in what's called the Talmud or the Mishnah, you'll see rules expressly saying you can only try someone at, at day, at daybreak. You, you can't do it in the middle of the night. Here, they're calling together their leaders. And, and one of the reasons they may have been doing this is because they wanted to wash their hands of this. They wanted to get Jesus accused of a crime that they could take him to Pilate and say, Pilate, you kill him. They didn't want a riot. They didn't want all this. They wanted to be able to wash their hands and say it was the Roman government that did it. So they get together in the middle of the night. They're trying to identify a charge against Jesus that is going to stick. And then they're going to run him to Pilate, and they're going to say, Pilate, you put him to death. Now, in fact, in front of Pilate, they told him, Pilate says, you take him, and you, you deal with him according to your law. And they say, it's not. We can't. We don't have the power to do that. In fact, the historical sources are a little bit ambiguous on this from what I could research. Did the Jews actually have power to put Jesus to death? It's actually a little bit uncertain. There's a little bit of evidence going both ways. But what matters here is that they were looking for a charge they had already prejudged him to be guilty. They already wanted to kill him. They had been strategizing to kill him for some time. And they were just looking for something that would stick. And so what happens? Verse 54, we see Peter followed him afar off, even to the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. He's just, he's just preparing you for Peter's denial. God willing, we'll look at that next week. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found None. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. Now again, what's going on here? You need to understand from, 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 from my study about how the Jewish Sanhedrin worked. 
the Jewish Sanhedrin were in, was intended to be protective of the defendant. Did you come in with a, with a trial, especially if you were looking for someone to be guilty of death? The Sanhedrin, they weren't the prosecutors. They were the one trying to protect the defendant. In fact, under the Jewish law, if someone was going to die, you needed two or three witnesses. You needed witnesses, and they were the prosecutors. So much so that if someone was accused of a capital crime by these witnesses, and they were to be put to death, say by stoning, guess who was the first one throwing the stone? The witnesses. The witnesses were the prosecutors in this system. And so do you see how this is totally backwards? Jesus comes in front of the judges, and what do the judges say? All right, we got to find some witnesses to make sure that he can be guilty. They'd already judged. They weren't looking for the truth to come out. And so what are they doing? They're searching for witnesses. And can you just imagine, hey, does anyone have testimony here about Jesus? Does anyone have something bad, anyone, any dirt against him? What do you think they would have done if the paralyzed man from Capernaum had stepped up and said, I, I, could I testify? I was a paralyzed man on a mat and my four friends brought me to see him and they let me down through the roof. They dug a hole in the roof and they let me down and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And when everyone got mad, he said, I'll prove it to you. Rise up and walk. And I, my, my legs immediately healed and I got up and walked. Can you imagine? Uh, next... Anyone else got some testimony? And here comes the gathering demoniac. Uh, I'd like to testify about Jesus. Uh, sir, what's your name? Well, it might help more if I gave my old name. My old name was Legion. Uh, why, why was that, sir? Well, because before I met Jesus, I was filled with so many demons, it was like there was an army in there. Okay. Yeah, and then Jesus rebuked them and they all left, and I've been perfectly delivered since. Uh, does anyone else have something to say? Any other testimony to give? Yeah, actually, my name's Jairus. You know me. You, you know me. I'm the ruler of the synagogue down the street. Yeah, my daughter was sick, and she was so sick, I asked Jesus to come and heal her, and before he could get there, she died. She was dead, and we were all weeping and mourning. And Jesus came in, and I still remember the words that he used. He used Talitha Kumi, damsel, a young woman, arise, get up, it's time to get up. And she got up and she was alive. Okay, let's stop this whole witness thing, right? Were they looking for those kind of witnesses? No. They were looking, it says, for false witnesses. For many, verse 56, bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. Now, what does that mean? They couldn't keep their story straight. Now, is that a surprise? Do you know what's way harder than telling the truth consistently? It's telling a lie consistently. I was dealing with this recently. I've, I've been working on a case with a team, and um, the other side has decided to make up a story. I mean, truly, truly make up a story. It's not the truth. And I, I talked to uh, one of their witnesses before this case ever happened, and I asked him something. He, he said one thing. He told me, this is what happened. And then I, I deposed him. I put him under oath. He was put under oath, and I asked him the same kind of stuff, and he said something completely radically different. In fact, I asked him under oath. I said, have you ever told anyone connected to my client something different than this? He says, I don't remember. Right, I mean, looking me right in the eye. 
saying that. But do you know what's amazing? Is that they have, they're having such a hard time keeping their story straight. They're having a hard time keeping the lie together. Why? Because it's way easier to tell the truth consistently than it is to tell a lie consistently. And these false witnesses couldn't agree together. They couldn't keep their story straight. And so again, they're at trial. Jesus is on trial. And what is happening? They're seeing the story fall together. They fall apart. They can't keep the story straight. Look at verse 57. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Now step back and think about this for a minute. They get some other witnesses to come together. And what happens with them? Now, they accuse Jesus of saying, I'm going to destroy this Jerusalem temple, and then I'm going to build it in three days. Now think about what that would say. There are a couple things. One, this would have been important because in the Greco-Roman, the Greek-Roman world of that day, to defame, to, to, to defile or destroy a place of religious worship, my understanding is, was a capital crime. You could kill, you could put someone to death. So they get up and say, hey, he's threatening our temple. Okay, that might have been a capital crime if they could have made it stick. But then what else? He said, within three days I will build another made without hands. Well, there's some kind of magic going on. There's some kind of sorcery. There's some kind of witchcraft. There, no one can build this temple. This, this temple took 30 plus years to build. You're telling me you can build it in three days? Preposterous! Exactly. Now, this is interesting because... If you're students of your Bible, you may recall that Jesus said something like this. They were actually recalling something that is recorded for us in the Gospels. And I'll just give you a cross-reference. You can go look at it in your own time. John 2 and verse 19. This was from three or three and a half years previously. Jesus was in Jerusalem, and the people of Jerusalem asked him a sign. Show us that you're the one. And do you know what Jesus said? Listen to what he said. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And now three or three and a half years later, some people are stepping up and said, I heard him. Listen to what they said. I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Is that what Jesus actually said? No. Do you know what he actually said? He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. Now, the book of John makes clear Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. And what he was saying to them was this, you will destroy this temple. He never said, I will destroy this temple. He said, was saying, you will destroy this temple and I will raise from the dead within three days. That's what he was saying. But these guys were able to twist that to say, he was saying, you were going to destroy this building and somehow magically, demonically rebuild it in three days. You see, this was a lie, but it at least had half a truth. It's why Tennyson, the famous poet, said that a lie which is half a truth is ever the blackest of lies. It's much harder to rebut a half-truth than it is to rebut a full falsity. So here is this conspiracy. They thought they had him. Now he was going to be 
guilty of death. But look at verse 59. But neither so did their witness agree together. They couldn't even keep their story straight on this charge of a threat to destroy the temple. And so at this point, look at verse 60, will you? And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Do you have nothing to say? What is it which these witness against thee? Now you need to understand how completely out of the ordinary this was. My understanding is that, again, these, these judges were not the prosecutors. They were not the ones standing up and, and aggressively interrogating the witness. They were supposed to be looking to protect the witness from false witnesses and test their testimony. And instead of doing that, they're the ones who are seeking this false testimony. And finally, this high priest apparently just loses his patience, probably loses his temper, goes and stands right in the middle of them, looks at Jesus and says, Aren't you going to say something for yourself? Why? Because he'd seen the witness fall apart. He'd seen the testimony contradict each other. And he said, we've got to get it from his own mouth. He's going to have to confess if we're going to have him stick on a charge. And look at what happens in verse 61. But he held his peace and answered nothing. I want you to think about that for a minute. Hey, Jesus, you've heard all these things that these witnesses are testifying. What do you have to say for yourself? And Jesus sits there and just looks at him and does not say a word. Would that have been your legal strategy? You know, it's very hard not to speak up in defense of yourself, isn't it? Have you ever been accused of someone, of something by someone that you know is false? Oh, it's the hardest thing to keep your mouth shut. Our own defense mechanism steps in and we say, you've got it dead wrong, let me tell you. And we lose our temper, we lose our patience when we're being falsely accused. What happened here with Jesus is he just stayed silent. You say, why did he? I think there's one thing. I think there's one thing that he was recognizing what Jewish law was. It's the witnesses who have to testify. It's their story. They are the ones that have to prove it. And he was just acknowledging that there was nothing true about what was being said. Their own testimony was falling apart. But there's another sense in which Jesus didn't need to say anything. Because, and we're going to look at this in a moment, what ultimately Jesus wasn't on trial before them. Ultimately, Jesus knew there was only one judge that he cared about. Which judge was that? It was his Father in heaven. He didn't need to defend himself. He didn't need to stand up for his rights. He knew that he was righteous before his father, and he was comfortable letting his father be the one to make the ultimate judgment, and he stayed quiet. Can you imagine how that would have enraged that, those judges who were looking for a conviction? And we see that because look at what happens next. Verse 61, Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now he's goading him, he's keeping on asking him. But not only do we, do we see this, actually the book of Matthew, the Matthew account helps us here. Because the high priest actually, we find, didn't just ask him this question, he put him under oath. What he said to him is, he said, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ. He said, I'm putting you under oath. 
tell me, again, from my understanding, completely out of bounds, completely inappropriate by judicial, by Jewish uh, judicial rules. Now, notice at this point what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus, are you the Messiah? He knew full well that Jesus believed to be the Messiah, who he knew to be the Messiah. He was simply trying to get a confession, finally, at the end of the day, of blasphemy that, he could, sti- that, could, that could stick. And notice what Jesus says. We're going to move first from the conspiracy, and secondly, to the confession. I love this word, confession. He's not confessing a crime, but he's confessing the truth. Jesus is making a good confession, a bold confession. He knew what it would cost him. But Jesus could not stay silent when he was put under oath and said, tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And look at what Jesus said. And Jesus said, I am. Now pause there. Ego I me. I am. Do you remember in the Old Testament when God spoke to his people of Israel through Moses, what he said, tell them my name is? What did he say his name was? I am has sent you. And when they look at Jesus in the eye and say, I I put you under oath, I, I cause you to swear before God that you tell me the truth. Are you the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one? Are you the son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? Jesus looked them square in the eye and said, I am. And then notice what he said. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. I want you to think about these words. Jesus knew that this was a death sentence. Jesus knew this was exactly what they were looking for. But it was time for him to speak out before this religious elite that was putting him on trial exactly who he was. And look at the effect it had. The high priest rent his clothes, tore his clothes, and saith, what need we any further witnesses? Now, what was he doing there? Under the Old Testament law, actually you could tear your clothes for blasphemy. It was a kind of symbolic representation. How dare you? And you literally tear your clothes. That's what he was doing. Do you think he was really horrified by what Jesus said? Or do you think inwardly he was so relieved that he finally had him? I think I know the answer. Tore his clothes in this show of, of, of horror and anger and grief. Tears his clothes and says, what need we? Do we need any further witnesses? <laughs> Think about what had been happening before. None of their witnesses. Man, can you imagine how relieved? <sighs> do we need any more witnesses? No! And what do they say? Ye have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Now, is Joseph of Arimathea part of the Sanhedrin here? Well, we learn later that he wasn't consenting to his death. I suspect he wasn't. Was Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin there? We don't know, it's not said. But everyone who was there, it said. They said, he's guilty. He's guilty of death. He's guilty of this blasphemy. And notice verse 65 moving from the confession to the condemnation. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face, to blindfold him, and to buffet him. This word buffet literally means to strike with the fists. They were striking this prisoner with their fists and to say unto him, prophesy, prophesy. 
And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hand. Can you imagine this kind of indignity? The Son of God who created the world is being spit on in the face. The one who had all power, who has all power to hold the world together is being punched repeatedly with a closed fist. The one who has all knowledge is being blindfolded and they're smacking him across the face and saying, hey Jesus, tell us who did it. You shouldn't need your eyes to know which of us hit you. Prophesy, prophesy. When by the power of God, he could have known every single detail about every single one of them. Incredible abuse. Incredible indignity for the very Son of God. Can we just pause here for just a moment and recognize that Jesus took this on intentionally for you? That this Christmas season is about Jesus choosing this, coming to earth out of love for you and for me to offer us the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life with him. He chose it and he humbled himself even to the point of death. But I want to stop for just a moment as we close here. And make sure we really understand what's going on here. Because Jesus did make a confession, and it did lead to his condemnation in this trial before these religious authorities. But I want to make sure you understand what Jesus was saying here. When Jesus looked at them and said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven, why was this blasphemy? Why was the high priest's immediate response, you've blasphemed? The idea of blasphemy here is that you've spoken against God. You've spoken against God. You've blasphemed him. Well, for one, we might think Jesus said very confidently, I am. But more than that, Jesus was bringing an Old Testament picture and sticking it right in their face. And that's really what we need to understand. In Daniel chapter 7, and again, whether you want to turn there or whether you just want to make a note of it to go look at, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, these words were written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. One of the most important prophecies of the Messiah to these Jews was given. And I'm just going to read it for you. And I think you'll immediately see the connection. Daniel 7 says, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. What was Jesus' favorite description of himself? Did he walk around saying, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Son of God? Did he, did he walk around saying that? What did he walk around saying? I'm the Son of Man. He was identifying with this passage in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, I saw one like the Son of Man come with the clouds of heaven. Exactly what Jesus said here in Mark 14. And came to the Ancient of Days. That's referring to God, the Father. 
And they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. They knew what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying this. I'm in front of your bar right now. I'm on trial before you. But do you want to know who I am? I am the one that has been prophesied for hundreds of years is the Son of Man who comes in the clouds of heaven and is given an eternal reign of power by God himself. What he was saying, in effect, was this. I may be standing in front of you on trial today, but one day you will be standing on trial before me. I and my kingdom can never be destroyed. And in that way, what was he prophesying to? He was telling them clearly, you can kill me, but you can never be rid of me. I will rise, I will come in the clouds of heaven, and I will come in great power and great glory. Is it any wonder that that high priest ripped his clothes and said, how dare you? How dare you speak against God like that? You know, friends, we need to be sobered by one thing here. It's that the high priest never bothered to ask whether Jesus was telling the truth. He never bothered to investigate whether Jesus might be the Son of God, whether he might be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. No, what he immediately jumped to was blasphemy, put him to death. But I at least give him credit for this. He knew the importance of what Jesus was saying. He knew the importance of the claim that Jesus was making, even if he didn't want to hear it. And in this Christmas season, I hold this in front of you as perhaps the most important lesson to take from this sobering passage. It's this. Jesus himself, by his own testimony of the word of God, makes unmistakable claim to be the son of God with an everlasting kingdom before whom you and I will stand and give account one day. He gives unmistakable claim that he is the one who has been assigned by God to judge the living and the dead and decide their eternal destiny. And therefore, the inescapable conclusion for us is that we have to make a choice. Jesus is, in that sense, on trial for all of us. Do you believe this morning, my friend, that he is the I Am? He is the incarnate God in human form. Do you believe that? Do you accept that evidence 
and accept his claim? Do you accept the claim that he is the promised one from the Old Testament, the one who will come in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory to be the judge of all men? Have you accepted that claim on the basis of all the evidence? Like the Sanhedrin, have you rejected it? Or perhaps even more soberingly, have you simply not thought about it a lot? You see, I wonder for all these people going about the Christmas season, listening to these songs like Joy to the World, The Lord is Come, Let Earth Receive Her King, do they even step back and think, Have I received the King? Do I believe that this child who was born is my king? Do they step back and think? Oh, friends, this Christmas season, I'm urging you wherever you are here or wherever you are within the sound of my voice to get off the fence, to make a choice, to render your verdict. Who is Jesus? And ultimately today, if you choose, if you believe, by the grace of God, that he is the I am, that he is the Messiah, that he's the anointed one, that he is the Savior who died on the cross for your sin. May this Christmas season, you embrace that reality, that eternal truth, that one day you will stand before him to be held accountable for how you lived the life that God gave you here. And may ultimately you choose to proclaim that central truth to a world that desperately needs to make their verdict on Jesus before one day, like all of us, they stand on trial before him.